0: Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. Our goal is to get to the root issues of systemic problems using a theological and psychological lens. We hope you enjoy. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold and storm their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes hospitals schools hotels and large municipal buildings malls churches and large commercial properties are their specialty managed properties nationwide no problem Putman Restoration services their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis, and I am super pumped about today's episode. I know I say that a lot, but um, I have today Dr. Tina Bryson. She's a psychotherapist and the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection in Pasadena, California. She's also written a ton of books. Um, Her her own book is... um, the bottom line for baby, and that's co- and then she's co authored a ton of books with Dr. Dan Siegel, The Whole Brain Child, No Drama Discipline, The Yes Brain. Um, and then the most recent one is the power of showing up. And if you know me, you and you listen to our podcast, then you've heard me mention her a billion times. And anytime mm-hmm. I'm talking about parenting and regulating, um, I always speak so highly of y'all. So thank you so much for giving me your time and for coming on,
1: Doctor Bryson. Oh, thank you so much for having me and I That's so nice. Thank you. I appreciate all the um, recommendations. And I really, you know, when I go back and look at those books, I'm really proud of them. They still hold up in terms of the science um, and they're effective. So anyway, I really appreciate that. And I love getting to talk about it. The Whole Brain Child actually came out um, 12 years ago this month. So it's been around. But it's still um, selling better now than it did the first year. So it's one of those books that I think... um, has momentum. Um, And I raised my kids on those philosophies. And I have three boys who are now 23, 20 and 17. Um, And I'm glad to know that the brain is still developing at those ages because sometimes as amazing as they are, I look at them and I think, okay, well, I can still trust a little more development to unfold. I can trust development and relax, take a breath. (laughs) That's Um, right. Yeah. That's, so anyway, that's, thank that's you a, so much for having me. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, tell us um, kind of how did you get in? I was interested in how did you get into this kind of line of work? What's your story? Like, how did you get into the brain science of parenting and, and trying to figure out like how to connect and be empathetic with kids? Because that's, I mean, you're just in a place in history, and I'm, I'm going to just blow your head up as much as I can. But you, you've been <laughs> such a pivotal person, you and Dr. Siegel. Of looking at the science and looking at how people are developing and children are developing, especially, and taking such a uh, an important stance on parenting and connecting for all of us, for therapists, for psychologists, for psychiatry, for just the average parent, for the church. Um, and I don't know what your faith background's like, and we can mention that if you want to. But um, for me, I work a lot with the church and trying to help them understand what I would say is how God designed the body and the brain and how that's most of those things are not at odds and actually if we understand kids developmentally then we actually can can kind of walk our faith out even better so tell us about you and how you got into this stuff
1: such a great question and you know what's funny is I everything that I've done in terms of my professional life was never my plan never my goal never my vision um and uh to give you like kind of how I got there is um I grew up in the church I grew up actually at Rick Warren's church saddleback okay. um I was there, My mom was on staff there. I met my husband there. Um, and so that's my background. I went to Baylor University. Oh, wow. um, and, so, and I have a son who went to Baylor University. Um, so that's definitely my my background. What was interesting is that, you know, when I was actually on a mission trip when I was 19 in Honduras with Saddleback, I knew that summer, I was like, if I don't invest my life in people, my life won't be meaningful to me. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to be, I'm going to, and I loved literature. So I was like, I'm going to be a high school English teacher. So that's what I studied, and I became a high school English teacher. And I studied a ton of child development. I studied education, and then I got married, and um, we moved to Kentucky um, for my husband to get his doctoral degree. And um, I was going to be a high school English teacher there, but in fact, there were no jobs, and we were broke. Uh, He was we were a broke couple, and he was in grad school. So I was like, I might as well take more schooling too. So I got an MSW, a master's in social work, and I learned a lot about clinical work, um, and I was really interested in that as well. And at the time, my mom was at Fuller working on her MFT and her MDiv. Oh, I did not know that, okay. Her clinical, so she was a stay-at-home mom all my growing up years, um, uh, and then got her degree in clinical psych, and then went on to do postdoc work in her 40s, which was kind of amazing. Um, So I, I had all of these opportunities to learn about the developing brain and about the importance of relationships and all these, and I got tidbits of it. But what was interesting then is uh, with the MSW, again, like I had all these different plans. I my, I most wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and have a bunch of kids. Um, and that was the plan that kind of unfolded until we moved to California, which is where I wanted to be. That's where I grew up. Um, and we had a baby and couldn't afford to, um, to live in California without me working. And so my husband said, hey... Um, you we've got, you have to work. We just have to do it. And I was like, "You're right. I don't know, see any other way around it." And I said, "But if I'm going to work, let me get a PhD really fast so that I can be a professor, so that I can be home with our kids and whatever." So we went into debt, and I got a PhD, and I was so I had an 18 month old. I was starting to take classes at USC, um, getting a doctoral degree um, in social work, and I was studying developmental psychology. Um, but I was a very frustrated student, because I am an incredibly curious person, and I want to know Mm mechanisms. So if I was hearing, like, if people have borderline personality disorder, dialectical behavioral therapy, this is just an example, is the most evidence-based effective treatment. And I would say, okay, but why? Why not other things? Or why that treatment? Like, what is the mechanism of change? And I couldn't find any answers. My mom found um, that there was going to be a conference just down the road from us called From Neurons to Neighborhoods. And I had read a book called From Neurons to Neighborhoods. I was fascinated with it. I was already really obsessed with Bruce Perry's work. He's one of my heroes. Um, He's a traumatologist and amazing. Um, And I went to this conference and Dan Siegel who I didn't know and who wasn't huge at the time, like he is now, was the keynote. And he started talking about the idea of integration and interpersonal neurobiology. And my brain lit up and I I reached over, grabbed my mom's hand, and I said, I have a professional crush. I have to go study <laughs> with this guy I Need to understand what is this interpersonal neurobiology. So I actually took some courses um, at UCLA, even though I was a USC student, um, and I joined a professional study group that Dan had at the time where we were going deep into the science of interpersonal neurobiology when i started to study the nervous system and i started to to study attachment science mm-hmm. and really looking at how we're created as mammals to seek closeness during times of distress and i started understanding what was happening in the brain and in um when my 2 year old was having a massive tantrum and my instinct was to use words and logic to talk to him and i was learning he can't even process that information in his logical brain. He's having a flood of these, you know, his right hemisphere and his whole nervous system is having a stress response. As I started to learn about the brain and the role of relationships in regulating our nervous systems, I was like, Oh my gosh, educators don't know this. Clinicians don't know this. Parents don't know this. This is my calling Mm -hmm. is to take the science and get it to people in a way that allows them to see and respond to reality yeah. um, in this deeper way. And so I I said, I think I need to write a book about this. And I told Dan and he said, great idea. Send a proposal over. He, This was the whole brain child. He loved it. He sent it to his agent. And I was at a little league f- uh, baseball game uh, with one of my kids and um, got a call from the agent saying that there was a bidding war on the whole brain child. And that's the beginning of Becoming a, an author, a clinician, um, and a mom who worked really hard to make sure I stayed engaged with my kids in their waking hours and yeah. then a lot at night, too. <laughs>
0: do you see what you do on like a personal level as ministry still? And how do you think you know,
1: about it? I, I would say, like I have, you know, that is my background, um, and and I'm not I, like I'm not. I don't go to church now. I'm not really. I'm not. My hands are not really deep in that world anymore. Mm-hmm. I actually have moved kind of in some different directions, yeah. but that is still the core of how I um, see the world. And yes, I feel like for me, every decision I made to follow a path was because I felt. Lit up, inspired to go that way. And I feel like that is, it's a calling. It really is. It's, it's, um, I feel like I, you know, I was designed to respond to certain things. And when I see the science and I see about how it can change people's lives, I feel called to that. So yeah, yeah I guess I see it as a ministry. Um,
0: that's awesome. And- I, it's been one because I can tell you this, you know, just your impact on my life. And I was telling you before we got on here, just, The impact you've made on me as a clinician and as a human being, and then on how I parent and how I teach and how I've been able to help the church and so many, I mean, just so many times. And even writing the book, there's a chapter called uh, Talk to the Right Brain. And and so I've mentioned you guys several times in it. Where, you know, just trying to help people understand how to have hard conversations and difficult conversations with their kids around sexuality and trauma. And it's like, you have to know the neuroscience, you have to know how they're wired and God made them. And, and that helps so much to put us in the right perspective. And, and so, yeah, I think, um, even though you know your books don't have any theology in them they do like they're they're steeped in my opinion with with how god's wired us and the theology and the kind of what i call the general revelation of like as we learn in science it's like oh okay well this matches perfectly with how jesus treated people and worked with people and talked about truth and grace and and mercy and and you know all these things and yet it's sad that many in the church right the they uh the legalism or the power struggles that we get into or the opposite of the brain science. And so I think that's where many people I'll give them your book and we'll have sessions around these conversations because it's like it blows their mind. And there, when I read your book, when I read whole Brain Child, and then when I, especially no drama discipline, which I want to get into a little bit today, um, it was the same thing. It was just like, you know, it was like, this is how I want to be a parent. This is how I'm, this is what I do anyway. Um, now it just makes sense, and I have, like, all this clinical justification for it. <laughs> and, and so science,
1: and that's, that's why, you know, I think it's – and I come from, like I said, you know, a, a Baptist Christian tradition, um, and it's very much how my brain is wired. You know, when we wrote The Power of Showing Up – And and I saw that 80 plus years of cross-cultural research that showed that the single best predictor for how well kids turn out on everything we measure them on is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. So that book is about how do we cultivate secure attachment if that's the best thing we can do for our kids? And the answer is the four S's, helping kids feel not perfectly, but predictably in enough times that they feel safe seen, soothed, and secure, and knowing we're going to keep showing up. And, and when I think about that, I'm like, that's exactly how how, how I felt about who God was in my life, mm-hmm. in my growing up years. You know, that's exactly, so I, I feel like, you know, no matter what adversity I walked through in my own childhood, in my own family, um, and in my life, that I always felt like Safe, seen, soothed, and secure was exactly what what my relationship with God provided me is that that kind of secure attachment, knowing you know that God would always show up. That's awesome. Um, and so, and then when we talk about di- no drama discipline, um, you know, I think particularly in the church community, um, it's really interesting because I find that um, when we talk about what discipline actually is. It's exactly what Jesus did with his disciples. Discipleship and the word discipline are the same root, and yep. it comes—it's about teaching and mentorship. But and when you look at um, culturally and particularly in more Christian tradition, um, but and, and our really our history as as a yep. I'll say it in the United States, but even across the world we often have used discipline from a punitive lens. Yep. Punishment. So much of what we do in the name of discipline is actually totally counterproductive when you understand how the brain works and how we learn. And for me, and I guess, I don't know if you want to go into the no drama discipline. Yeah, let's do it.
0: I mean, yeah, it's great. Uh, I don't even um, need notes. I can talk about that forever.
1: (laughs) We'll just chat. Yeah. Um, You know, when I, when I, it's funny, we, when we were writing No Drama Discipline, we had a colleague s- who that we trust say, you know, please don't use the word discipline in the title of your discipline book because most people think punishment yeah. when you say discipline. And I said, you know what? Well, and
0: then they automatically I'm, think spanking. You know, if it, you exactly. hear the word discipline in most yeah. culture, it's, it means spanking.
1: Right. And which is interesting too because, you know, when we talk about the rod and all of that in the Bible, like, the rod wasn't used to hit the sheep. The rod was used to guide the sheep. By yep, the way. Yep. Um, anyway, um, don't get me started.
0: Like, yeah, don't. That's get-
1: a whole <laughs> other episode or four episodes. But anyway, I will say that um, I was like, no, I am not going to shy away from that word. Let Dan and I decided, like, let's reclaim the original meaning of that word, yep. which is to teach and to build skills and to disciple and to mentor. So here's the deal. Here's the thesis of the No Drama Discipline book. And I have ha- I have lots of podcast episodes that talk about this in depth. Um, and, of course, the book is in audio form and all of that. But here's the, here's the, the bottom line. The word looks line. great, too. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, the, the point and purpose of discipline. Like, why even do it? is so that we raise children to be self-disciplined, so that they make the right choice and they handle themselves well and regulate themselves emotionally, behaviorally, relationally. They regulate themselves on their own when we're not looking, when we're not there, et cetera, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the end goal. And most parents can agree with that, right? We want our children to become self-disciplined human beings, which means if we are effective disciplinarians, teachers, then every time we discipline, we should be responding to the behavior in a way that makes it more likely they can do better the next time. Yep. And when we ask ourselves, okay, is what I'm doing, yelling, lecturing, sending them to their room, taking things away, spanking, like do any of these things give them a better chance of doing it better the next time? Oftentimes the answer is no, because behavior is communication about what skills they don't yet have.
0: Mm -hmm. Say that again.
1: Misbehavior. So basically, you know what, our kids are giving this amazing gift, it doesn't feel like it. But our kids are basically saying, I don't have skills around how to handle this better, or I would have. (laughs) Kids don't like getting in trouble. It's not fun. They want to, they want to be in connection with us. And so if a kid particularly keeps doing the same behavior over and over and over again, even if it's a problem behavior, it's often because they don't know what to do instead. They don't yet have that skill. So if I just yell at my kid and say, you are you know, you can't go out next weekend, what skill does that help them build for the next time? So instead, so basically, let me say it this way. If I, every misbehavior, every opportunity, like our kids are giving us, if I tell parents lots of times, like, Make a list of the three or four things that drive you the most crazy, that you're most worried about, that cause the most conflict in your home around your child's behavior. What are those things? It might be like managing anger. It might be, you know, sibling conflict. It might be disrespectful back talk. Whatever it is, we make a list. But the list, the title of the list is not discipline problems. The title of the list is skills my child needs to build. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing something to them, like I'm going to punish you now and make it so unpleasant for you that you did that, that you're unlikely to do it the next time. I need to do something for them. So let me give a really specific example. Um, Okay, so let's say you've got a four-year-old who's hitting a sibling, and you say, if you hit her one more time, you're not getting dessert tonight. The child is four years old, and... Is likely to hit again. In fact, the research shows that no matter what our discipline strategy is, including spanking and everything else, that at those early ages, there's a 50% chance they're going to repeat that behavior within a two to three hour period because Mm -hmm. their brains are still undeveloped and they don't have, they can't put the brakes on yet. Um, Does that mean we just say, oh, well, we're going to wait for development? No, it means this is an opportunity to give them reps, just like when I lift weights and I do reps, I build a muscle, we want to build the brain. Um, And so we give them practice and we let them do do do-overs and all of these things to help them practice those skills. Okay, so let's say he hits her again. It's now dessert time. Everyone else at the table is having ice cream and your four-year-old is sitting there with no ice cream. And your four-year-old is sitting there thinking, you know what, I really wish I had made a different choice. And now, you know, this is really unpleasant. I don't like not being the only one eating dessert. So I'm going to make a better choice tomorrow. And so then the next day comes and his sister has done something terrible to him and he's really mad. And he pauses and he says, I don't want my ice cream taken away. So I'm not going to hit her. No, that's not how it works. That's right. We make the assumption that every misbehavior is a choice. Now, sometimes they are, but other times it's because we're dysregulated or we don't have the impulse control yet or we don't have a better strategy. So thinking about it this way, um, I, uh, I, wor- I work in a lot of schools and um, this is a kid who's in first or second grade. He was using inappropriate language at school and he only did it during um, social interactions where it was kind of free and unstructured, like during library time or recess or whatever behavior is communication. So here's the deal. The kid kept using inappropriate language at school. His favorite was saying butt crack. Okay. So obviously <laughs> sounds
0: like my kids. The,
1: yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. And the kids laughed or whatever. No tone taking away recess. Now you can't go to library. Like teachers had done everything and still the behavior continued. So I went and observed this kid and it was very clear to me. Because I like to say when we're talking about discipline, behavior is communication about what skill they don't yet have. So the first question we want to ask is comes from curiosity. Mm -hmm. What is the skill they don't yet have? So that's keeping them from doing the right thing here. So I watched this kid and it was really clear that he had a really hard time entering play with kids. Like he didn't know how to join the group. He didn't know how to do that yet. Um, And uh, so when he said, butt crack He did it. Like that was a problematic behavior, but it was his best adaptation. So when I met with the parents, I was like, Your kid's a genius. Um, He doesn't have another, he doesn't know how to do this, but he found something that worked. Like the kids laugh and they include him. So it works for him. And that's why the behavior is continuing. He knows he's not okay. He's getting all these consequences. So, you know what we're going to do? Instead of doing something to him, like taking away recess or giving him timeouts, let's do something for him to build that skill. So we say to him, we know you know it's not okay to say butt crack at school. It's not appropriate language at school. So we have a boundary boundaries and limits and high expectations are great for kids they help them feel safe it's really important that we have those boundaries i think so that's a good
0: to- i think that's a great point because i think so many people you know we've moved into let's say gentle parenting or whatever label you want to throw on it and what they think or what it's played out is is they don't have boundaries they don't have structure and so a lot of especially christian parents think when they hear the brain science stuff, they're like, well, they're just going to run crazy. And it's like, no, like if you just, if you look at the totality of the information, it's like, no, they need structure. They need boundaries. They need to know what to expect and what they're going to get. And you need to be what seven or eight out of 10 times doing the same thing. You can be, you can mess up. You don't have, you cannot be a perfect parent, but you do have to be pretty consistent.
1: Yep, absolutely. And that's, you know, I actually did my dissertation on um, on a big piece around this, which is decades and decades and decades since before the 1960s even, but really huge burst of research in the 1960s, a very long time ago, <clears throat> showed us that the science is actually really clear that not being boundary and being permissive is bad for children. Mm-hmm. So if you really look at the science, and by the way, I get, I get put in the gentle parenting category. I do not accept that um, title because Good. that... Category, um, because we need to be sturdy, steady leaders yeah. where we are in charge. That is what helps our children feel safe. Love it. But here's where we need to get it wrong, and then I'll go back to my little butt crack boy story. Yeah, please. Um um here's where the gentle parenting lens is wrong, and here's where a lot of people um are are not kind of on solid ground. And that is we think either we're gonna be gentle, respectful, connected emotionally responsive whole brain parent people or the opposite of that is strict boundaryed you know rigid. um rigid whatever and here's the deal that is not one dimension the research is actually saying there are two separate dimensions and what's really clear from the science they are not opposites of each other we want to be very high on emotional responsiveness, on empathy, on connection, on connect before redirect. Around giving our children cues of safety and teaching them instead of punishing them. We want to be high on all of that, and we want to be really high on boundaries, limits, and expectations. That's good. And um, and so, and I'll give a really specific example of that. I'll just say with this little boy, all we had to do was say to him. That's not okay. So we're holding a boundary. We know you know it's not okay to do that. And so we're going to give we're going to talk about what else could you do. And so we basically taught him some appropriate jokes and even having the phrase which he didn't have of can I sit next to you or can I ju- can I play too. He yeah. didn't even know that and so he just was given simple tools. The behavior went away. So let me give an example of how. And and by the way, this is all of the books pulled together. Um, I'll give an example of like a younger child, and then I'll give an example of an older child. Mm-hmm. So my uh, my five year old in the bathtub one night, refusing to get out. He's totally dysregulated. He's yelling at me. Um, And I say, it's time to get out. And he says, I'm not getting out. And he's trying to splash me. So he's totally dysregulated. The very first thing I need to do as the steady leader is safe. I want him to be safe, which means I need to be predictable in my behavior and I need to be regulated. Mm. Now, when all kids are dysregulated, it's very contagious. It can activate our own fight, flight, freeze threat circuitry. So the first thing I do is I put a hand on my chest and a hand on my belly. I often close my eyes. I do something called the physiological sigh, Mm -hmm. which is where our exhale is longer than our inhale. And as I'm doing that to regulate my own nervous system, I say to myself, at his worst is when he needs you the most. Mm, so good. You want to be the calm in the storm, you cannot be the storm. So I'm I'm coaching myself as I'm calming my body. And I'm like and I'm not I'm like I know this is he's he's going to he's not going to handle this well, but I can handle this well. And that's, by that's the way, that's a great
0: point right know, there.
1: Yeah. Totally, right? I want to model regulation. So, because here's what's funny is if I do what I want to do in that moment, which is to say, you get out right now, and if you don't get out right now, you're not getting bedtime stories tonight. And I am, I, I, after doing this for decades, I still have that instinct to go to threat.
0: 100.
1: I'll tell you, I'll tell you, that is a lose 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 situation. Every it's time. a lose. It's a lose for me because he's going to get more dysregulated, making it less likely he can learn. And remember, my whole thing is about disciplines, about teaching anyway. It, it, the, you, the brain either can learn it's in a receptive state or it's in a reactive state can't learn. So if I make things worse and I escalate things, it's even less likely he's going to learn and take anything away from the interaction. So he loses. I lose because I'm and now bedtime's going to be even worse, right? It's going to make things longer, worse, whatever. And I will tell you, that if you rely on threat-based discipline, you will eventually always lose. Mm. Imagine, and some of you have little kids, it's hard to imagine this, but imagine you have, I have a 17-year-old that's six foot one and I'm five four. If I have relied on threat-based parenting and I say to him, you're not going out tonight. I'm taking away, your like you're you're in for tonight. No, you can't go out with your friends. What if he says, yeah, I am. What am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Am I going to either physically, if I, unless I'm willing to try to physically restrain him, which would never happen, or I'm willing to call the police and turn something into a whole potentially even Department of Social Services incarceration nightmare. situation, yeah. <clears throat> nightmare that's traumatic for everyone, including the neighbors and myself and my kid, unless we're willing to go to that extreme, which is damaging all the way around, we will eventually lose. So we don't want to rely on threat-based parenting. So here I do, here I am in this moment. I call myself and I say to him, it's time to get out. You can either get out by yourself or I will help you out. So I'm holding, I'm setting a boundary, which helps him feel safe also. I'm staying regulated, which gives him cues of safety. He says, I'm not getting out. So, here's where I hold the boundary while still being emotionally responsive, connected, and co-regulating. Because if my goal is to teach him, I have to move his nervous system from dysregulated into receptive and ready to learn. Mm -hmm. So, in the name of discipline, the first thing I'm going to do is co-regulate to get him back into a regulated state so he can learn. Yep. Okay? Very logical. So what I do, he says, I'm not getting out. I reach under his slippery little armpits. And as I pull him out, holding my boundary, I say, you're so mad about bath time being over. You really wanted to stay in. I know, sweetie. It's really hard to get out when you really want to stay in. So what I'm doing is I'm also helping him not just feel safe, but feel seen. He's like, oh, she gets me. And she just gave me emotional vocabulary and she also just gave me a rep of saying my grown up understands my internal landscape mm-hmm. she gets me and now i can under i trust that she can handle my big emotions and i can now know myself better too yep. cuz she's reflecting it back to me then i say i wrap the towel around him and i pull him to me and now i'm going to practice soothing because i'm going to co-regulate him by my calm presence and comforting and connecting with him knowing that the part of the brain that lights up when we're in physical pain, which is when we're actually usually really good at comforting our kids. When they're in physical pain, they're yeah, sick. Little, they, they're their knee. Yep. Nurture, nurture, nurture. But you know, the same but when it's emotional and behavioral and looks disrespectful and out of control, guess what? Same part of the brain is lit up. They are in emotional pain and distress. Same part of the brain lights up. So it's my job to calm and connect. Yeah. So I wrap the towel around him, I pull him to me. And honestly, the most important part of soothing and co-regulation is just showing up with our, pre- our presence. And, and so I say to him, I know, sweetie, you're, you're having such a hard time. And I say this phrase all the time. I'm right here with you while you're upset.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm not changing my boundary. I'm not fixing it. I'm not distracting him. I'm just with him in it. I call the dog up, the dog starts being silly, he starts to move out of dysregulation with my calm presence. It happened, it actually works very quickly to move him from dysregulated with me just saying I'm right here with you. I think and I, yeah. sometimes I even if you need to cry or yell, it's okay. I'm right here with you while you let it out. Yeah. And I am not ruffled. I hold it. I and I communicate to him, I trust that you can handle your big feelings and you can trust that I can handle your big feelings. And I am calm and steady. And then when I'm not, let's say I lose it at some point in there and I end up yelling or I end up joining the chaos or I end up being really immature, which I can definitely do, then I'm going to repair. Yeah. I'm going to make, the, we can talk about that if, if we want to.
0: No, it's great. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm nerding out a little bit because it's like, you know, this is, I, I feel like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh yeah, this is why I know all that I know because I've read every book that you have. Uh, so it's, it's, uh it's just I'm just thinking about my kids and thinking about all the conversations I have with clients and how well it really, really does work. And again, not perfectly, right? We all get dysregulated and join the chaos um, from time to time. But I think if parents can listen to what you're saying and especially read the book and dive into it, the, you know, one of the reasons I, I named the podcast asking why is just that it's like, when you understand the why of why you do things as a parent, it helps you to have that grounding and that and that be able to connect and be able to be compassionate because you know you know what you need to do and you know what the outcome is if you do the other it's never going to work you know it's like it's the same thing in marriage i mean you just move this into marriage and it's like Have I ever been yelling at my wife and her yelling at me and arguing? And then one of us stopped and been like, you know what? You're right. Let me listen to you. (laughs) You Like never. And so it's not until we remove ourselves from the situation. And we can do that with adults, right? We can kind of pause or exit and wait or go, you know, take a walk. But with our kids, we got to connect and we got to be right there. We can't just leave them in the room to cry um, and leave them in the bathtub to hurt themselves or lead, you know, leave right. them with a, a dangerous stick or weapon or whatever. Um, we have to be regulated first so we can regulate with them. And so I think yeah. it's such a beautiful. And
1: to, and to say like, it's my job to keep you safe. Yep. I won't let you play with that stick. And, and, and it's, it is not like parents. I think sometimes we, this generation of parents and particularly the, the, you know, highly respectful, gentle parenting movement, which I, I love if it has boundaries, yep. uh, is that, you know, it sometimes seems like a dirty, like a dirty word. If you tell your kid, no, or if you say, I won't let you do that. And that is just, that's just not what the science tells us. And it's, it kids need to hear <clears throat> us be in charge. Yep. Um, it doesn't mean we don't ever change our minds. And I think, you know, there, there's a, anytime we're really rigid about any one thing, it's, it's, typically bad. But like, let's paint a scenario where um, I was walking behind a mom who was and I very much identify with this, you know, we're like pack mules, right? So she's holding a baby, she has a three or four year old, she's carrying, it's coming from a little league game, she's carrying all this other stuff. And she has like a seven year old who's sweaty drinking his slurpee and whatever else. And the the three year old says, um, I want my bucket and her, the buckets like halfway up her arm with six other bags, you know, like it would <laughs> set everything down, including the baby to get the bucket. But the kid's like, I want the bucket right now. And she's like, hold on a second, you know, whatever. And he's like, and so he starts having a total meltdown. And here's what she does. And it's really the only scenario. Like she, she said, she's like, fine. And she like drops everything and hands in the bucket. Now, I don't like that. And I've done, certainly done those moments. So no judgment on this mom. But what she just communicated to him is if you fuss and yep. throw a fit.
0: You're going to get what you want.
1: So Brian an amazing association machine. Yeah, it's sort of like negotiating with a terrorist, right? <laughs> so here are two other alternatives. Alternative one is she says, I know you want the bucket. And it's so hard to wait. I can't set everything down right now why don't we count how many numbers do you think it'll take until we get to the car? Right. Mm Or, or she maybe doesn't even have the brain space to be fun and playful and creative that way. Maybe she just says, I'm sorry, buddy, you have to wait. And if he cries, she can say, I know it's hard. It's okay. If he cries, it's okay. If he has those big feelings, she can still be empathetic about his feelings while holding the boundary. Mm -hmm. So the way I like to say it, and what we say in no drama discipline is you can say no to a behavior, even while saying yes to your child's emotional experience about the behavior. And, um, Or you know what? She can totally change her mind if she wants to. As the grownups in charge, we can change our minds. And that doesn't mean our kids think, let me tell you how I did this. So I said, so the other option is to say, you know what? I can see that you really want this bucket and we have time. We can just take a pause. Hang on just a second. And she can, she can set her stuff down and hand it to him. And that's perfectly fine but not in a moment of giving. She wasn't giving in. She's making a choice. And I will say, if you go that route and you have a kid who is bright and loves to negotiate and one more, one more, one more, one more, we have to have a, a backup p- plan. And the backup plan is, so let's say you're in bed with your kid, you're reading stories and they say, one more book, please, please, please. And you go, okay, fine, one more book. Okay, maybe you give in, it's no big deal, right? If you're like, we're enjoying it, we have time, it's early enough, I can change my mind. You can say, you know what? I'm gonna change my mind about that. We we actually read those books quicker than I thought and we have a few more minutes. I'm mm-hmm. gonna change my mind we can read one more book. Then let's say your kid says after that one, they they ask for more or the next night they keep doing it. The fail. They will. <laughs> they will. A hundred percent. The fail. The backup plan, which has worked really effectively for all three of my boys, is then I say n- no or this is the very last one. And I'm not changing my mind. And then once I say that, I absolutely never change my mind. And so then they know once I say that, it's not worth the ongoing. And then if they cry and they whine, I go, I know that's disappointing. You really wanted one more. I know that's really hard. I'm right here with you while you feel those big feelings about that boundary. Um, and what what they come to learn is, again, instead of giving in or distracting them or fixing it or changing our boundary, they come to learn that when they feel disappointment, like they didn't get what they wanted, they can tolerate that feeling. And and we've given them this implicit message that I trust that you can handle disappointment. I don't have to talk you out of it or ch- or give in to you or distract you or anything because you can feel that feeling and I trust that you can come out on the other side. The way our children build resilience Is by walking through difficult things with enough support. And I'll say one other thing, Clint, that I I really think is important. The biggest pushback I get when I talk about the idea of co-regulating and soothing and connecting with our kids when they're falling apart, which often looks like disrespectful behavior, verbally or or, you know, whatever disobedience. Uh, Yeah, disobedience um, is is that I say no. That's if we want to get them to where we're teaching them. And we're holding them accountable for their behavior, they have to be in a receptive state. So the way we get them there is through empathy, connection, all of that, even yeah. in the midst of challenging behaviors. What parents say to me is, you're just giving attention to bad behavior and you're you're it's spoiling them. And what I want to say back is the way that the brain works is that what we practice doing is what we're able to do, right? It's like those reps, like when I lift weights, my muscle gets bigger. So what I'm doing when my child is dysregulated, because normally when my kid is regulated, they're not talking to me that way. They're not behaving this way. So this is happening because they're dysregulated. So the answer to that is to help them be better at being regulated more. So the way I get them there is by giving them a rep of going from a dysregulated state back to a regulated state. So that's what I'm doing in the moment while holding the boundary.
0: I I think one of the huge uh, problems with that, that I see is dysregulated adults, right? And so if we don't do the work of therapy to figure out why are we so dysregulated by our kids' emotions and their big feelings and our lack of control, you know, that's where the, that's where the, the root cause in our own hearts is, is that we, we've done no work. And we think that we're just, you know, kids are going to come in and they're going to be fun. And we have this kind of, you know, picturesque, you know, thing of what marriage or, you know, parenting is going to be like. And then it's all hell breaks loose. (laughs) and You're trying to (laughs) to function. And I tell my clients that all the time. Like, you think I don't lose my mind every once in a while? Absolutely. But I I think when I regulate, you know, if we look from like a Christian worldview, I'm always talking with people about you have to be connected first. Like the first step for me is that you have to be connected to who you are, that God loves you, that he loves your kids, that he's going before you, and that these things that are happening, he's going to work for good, these promises he's given us. And so if we can walk in that, like I loved your your deep breath, right? For a Christian parent, man, it's sometimes, you know, I'll step out of the room and just say a little, uh, you know, Jesus, Lord, help me, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is that I can say out loud. Um you know, help me be calm, help me know that these kids are, I love them, know that, you know, you got this, whatever little liturgy, you know, it doesn't have to be some big lofty thing. And then I can walk back in there. And I think that that's what many parents go, well, my kids are dysregulated all the time and they're always upset. And it seems like they're never calm. So where me and you might say, well, when they're regulated, they're, you know, they're respectful. Most, lots of people are saying, well, seven out of 10 times, my kids are acting disrespectful and yelling, it's like, well, because you've gotten into a cycle, you know, you're five years in, you're 10 years in and you're, you, you know, because you haven't been regulated, it's just, everybody's been dysregulated the whole time. And I think, I don't know what you think about this, but I think that's one of the big, um, drivers to the screen time and the phone and, you know, addiction is it's so much easier when we get home to not to let that regulate us, right, or disassociate yeah. us, really, um, versus have to regulate and speak truth to ourselves and all that stuff.
1: I think what you're saying is so crucial. I think so much of the time, and, and back to, you know, the name of your podcast, and and what we call it, what we see in No Drama Discipline, Chase the why. that's for ourselves as much as it is for our kids. And I think, you know, the physiologic, so we do this all the time throughout the day, we sigh, we're like, if we're feeling overwhelmed or exasperated or overstimulated or whatever, we do this all the time and we can do it on purpose. It's called the physiological side. Do, um, Dr. Andrew Huberman talks about mm-hmm. it all the time on podcast. And it really is Love the quickest guy. thing we know to me too. I'm obsessed. Um, the quickest thing we know to downregulate the nervous system. Um, and and what's interesting is a lot of them, you know, our brain is a neural network. And so if we, wa- if we have an angry look on our face and we're, we're, have our arms folded, and we're doing kind of more aggressive um, physical postures, we're activating more of those kinds of emotions. But if we if we really connect with ourselves and do that, and really, the physiological side is just making your exhale longer than your inhale. And you know, what's funny is like, I've done it for years and years and years. And I always put a hand on my chest and a hand on my belly, and I would do it, I would go, and I really was, and my, and my kids, you know, at first they were like, and I'm like, I'm just taking a moment and I would say it out loud. I'm taking a moment to calm down my body so I can think clearly. And so I can act in love uh, so I can be the parent I want to be. Um, so I can listen. So whatever. But so it's funny is when my, my kids would know I would do that before I was about to yell. So it almost, <laughs> and it also actually became a warning sign for them, which was actually kind of interesting because then they were like, oh, okay. She's at that point. So maybe we need to rein it in. So it actually became, not that they're responsible for my emotional regulation, but we're in relationship with each other. And so that's a really helpful, you know, thing to think about. I think regulating ourselves first is key. Um, And so just doing that side. And I think the other thing, Clint, is that when we mess up, and I, in No Drama Discipline, I tell several stories about, you know, times I would you know, threatened to remove a body part from my kid, he stuck his tongue out. And I was like, if you stick it out one more time, I'm gonna rip it out of your mouth. (laughs) And I often tell about a time I was playing Yahtzee with my kids, and I got so mad and lost my mind, and ended up yelling at them and throwing the dice across the room like a crazy person. You know, we have these moments as parents. Now I have a choice after that moment. And what happens for a lot of us is that people go into a shame spiral then. And they beat themselves up and they're like, I'm the worst parent. What is wrong with me? Um, And what happens is that when we go into a shame state, it actually makes us more likely to flip our lid and continue to be more dysregulated going forward. So So it is that cycle you're talking about. So here's what I suggest. The first thing is in that moment, as soon as you can center yourself, regulate yourself and make the repair. And what's interesting is the research is really clear that when we mess up as parents, as long as we make the repair, it's actually beneficial, yay, for our children that we've messed up. Because what's happening then is they, the brain hates unpredictability. So when something's unpredictable, it means there's a potential danger there, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why predictability and boundaries is really good. When we are calm and sweet and connected to our kids and fun, but then we become unpredictable and fly at the handle, that is actually violating a sense of safety for them. But if we do that and we always follow it with repair, it's actually less of a cue of threat for them because they go, okay, I don't like this. My mom is not nice right now. This feels really bad and the relationship feels bad and I don't like this, but I know based on all these other times before that she's going to come make things right with me very quickly. So they can actually build relational resilience of sitting in the messiness and conflict of relationship, knowing it's going to be okay again very soon. So we make the repair. And then after the repair, what is so important, instead of going into shame spiral, be curious and say, what was it that got in the way of me being the parent I wanted to be in that moment? And sometimes the answer is simple. Like, I haven't peed by myself in eight years. I'm exhausted. (laughs) I have calories today. And I and I am totally taxed. I can't, my capacity is too low to function well. Okay. So then you've got your answer of some things you might need to make different. And sometimes it's deeper than that. And we need some more professional support. Sometimes the answer is when my kid loses it, it reminds me, he looks like my dad and his face looks like my dad. And when he gets turns red and starts yelling at me, I get really, I feel really vulnerable and I feel really anxious and I need to, I need to figure out what that's about for me. I'm getting triggered and activated and I want to peel the layers back and resolve some of that. So the key is to reflect upon it and say, what is it? What is getting in the way for me? And when the science tells us that when we reflect and when we do what Peter Fonagy talks about mentalizing, we really reflect on our what's happening inside of us and what the meaning of it is to us. It actually changes our brains to make it more likely we can provide secure attachment to our children. So I think that piece of, of um, being curious for ourselves instead of going into shame um, and then giving ourselves what we might need in order to be the parent we need to be, is a really loving, caring um, response that also sets us up for more success in those difficult parenting moments.
0: That's awesome. Super amazing. I love that um, all that you're saying is stuff that I, I feel like everybody needs to know, literally every parent and everybody listen to this. If you if you haven't listened, I know we got a hard stop in five minutes, so I want to make sure you get out of here. Um, if you haven't read any of Dr. Bryson's books or Tina, since you told me to call you Tina. Uh, if you haven't read any of Tina's books or Dr. Dan Siegel's, please order them today. Literally just go on, go on Amazon and just click away you other. One click, get them to your house, read them, listen to the, listen to podcasts. It will revolutionize your household and your family and your parenting. Um, and, and I just, again, not to plug my book too much, but as I think about a couple of the chapters that I read, one of the things we, I, I call it the four A's affirmation affection attention and then authenticity and authenticity comes right from that idea of as a Christian parent and a parent in general you can't be perfect and your kid needs to know you're not perfect um and like when I talk about obedience and, and a lot of parents get on a, that obedience kick, what I'll tell my sons is, you know, well, I was disobedient like four times today, you know, like you're not in this alone, you know, like, yes, you were disobedient, but you're supposed to be like, you're learning, you're, 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 you're you know, you're figuring this out and daddy was too. And I know better and I still do it. So that, that connection um, is so important. And then lastly, the last thing I'll plug is, um, I use you know, a lot of y'all's research in science, and as I've been reading Scripture the last decade of reading y'all's books and stuff, um, The Woman at the Well is the story that I stick with all the time. And so in the book, I, I write these kind of six steps of how – and I don't mention this in the book, but I'm going to mention here that that's where I got it from. But there's these six six steps of kind of connect, sympathize, empathize, offer support – teach and then make a plan. Um, And it comes a lot of from what you're talking about and what you guys have gone off of. But I kind of took it from Jesus with the woman at the well. And it's literally what he does with her. It's like by the end, he's telling her what to do or sending her out. But man, he does so many, he's connected to God. He sympathizes with her, shows up and meets her where she's at. He empathizes with her plight. Then he offers support. Then he teaches and then he sends her out to go do stuff. And I think obviously in every situation, you're not going to get through all the steps, but, um, it's so important for parents to understand these things that you're teaching. And so I just thank you so much for just all the things, again, just that you've built in me as a, as a clinician and a person and a dad. So thank you for your time today. Um, you can check Dr. Bryson out on all Instagram, Facebook, you know, Google her. She's a New York times bestseller. So you can, you can find her books everywhere. Um, any closing thoughts or comments?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I would say just as, you know, obviously we love it if people, you know, buy the books. But um, there's also a ton of free content on my website, um, including the refrigerator sheets that give the main points from each of the books. Mm -hmm. Those are free. They're great. You can print them out and put them on your refrigerator to give you the reps to remember them. Um, And then on Instagram, particularly, but across all social media, like I did a thing earlier this year. I did mistake Mondays and, and for like 20 weeks, it was like every Monday I did, here's a discipline mistake we all make, and here's what to do instead. And so all of that is on Instagram. So there's tons of good stuff there. I think one other thing I would say is that I think the idea of even like when you were talking about obedience, um, You know, I think, again, one of the ways we're really off is thinking about compliance as the goal and obedience as the goal. But actually, I want to shift that narrative and say that regulation is the goal, because when we are regulated, we typically do make the right decision. And we can have kids who are compliant and obedient, but completely anxious on the inside, completely like falling apart internally, but just hiding it. And so um, for me, you know, we and that, that gets into a whole thing about, you know, behavioral interventions and all this stuff. But like we can set up a whole behavioral intervention to make a kid like do a particular behavior. And they might be obedient and compliant with the target goal, but full of anxiety so much so that they're falling apart in other areas of their lives. So I think if we hold in mind that as the brain develops... And as development unfolds and we can trust development, our kids, even if we don't do anything right or well, the brain continues to develop and our kids gain skills just from that, even without mm-hmm. um, our input. So we can rest in that um, is that as development unfolds, if we in the moment, let me say it this way. My North Star, there are so many moments as a parent, as a wife, as an employer, um, as a best friend, where I'm not sure if I know the right thing to do or say or how to respond in the moment. But for me, the North Star is always the four S's from the power of showing up, safe, seen, soothed, and secure And knowing I'm going to keep showing up. And if I can do that, if I can respond in a way while holding a kid accountable for their behavior... um, That's always the right answer because we know that builds the brain, particularly the prefrontal cortex, which allows them to build regulation and insight and empathy and pausing before action and doing all the behavioral things um, and the internal work things that allow them to be self-disciplined and to be the most optimal version of themselves where they can thrive. So I would just say like relationship first and um, if we if we are holding the idea of connection and regulation as our number one thing, even while holding boundaries, that's going to lead to the best outcomes. So um, it's a whole mind shift. So I would encourage everyone to kind of read the book, No Drama Discipline, read Power of Showing Up, and kind of really steep yourself in this because a lot of what you and I have talked about today, Clint, is countercultural. And so we really need to kind of learn it and practice it in order for it to happen.
0: It is. It is walking in that narrow gate that Matthew talks about. It's like, you have to be different than the culture and, and normal now is not healthy. You know, we used to say we want a normal life and it's like, no, you don't. You got to fit in the, in the small way because how everybody's doing all of these things is, is, is not working out. And the proof's in the pudding. I mean, look at our culture and look at the, the trauma that people have. And so thank you for being a light in that. Thank you for fighting so hard. And, um, yeah. You guys look up Dr. Tina Bryson and Dr. Dan Siegel's work and thank y'all for listening. God bless.